Way to go, Ben. Phil Wakefield, I, I don't play the piano, but if I did, I would want it to sound just like that. That's how I would want to play. Very good job, man. That was awesome. We are in Genesis chapter 3 for our Bible study this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you did not bring a Bible or you need a Bible, our ushers are going to be going down the aisle in just a minute. If you need a Bible today, we're going to read about 20 verses in Genesis. Just wave at them. Uh, they'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, keep it. This is yours. Put your name in it. We've given away more than 400 Bibles since our church began, uh, just like this. If you just forgot a Bible today, but you'd like to have one in your lap to mark in, to, to, uh, to write on, just wave it an usher. They'll get it. And uh, if you've got one at home, just throw it on the table when you leave, and we'll give it to someone else next week. And I want you to, uh, I want you to get a few things ready today, because today is going to be a note-taking day. You're, you're going to have to write way more than I provided for you. You might be looking for scratch paper because just a lot of good information today. But make sure you pull out your sermon notes. And then uh, we, uh, we handed out these cards last week. And man, I'll, I'll tell you, I am uh, I'm, I'm burdened and blessed at the same time by the questions that people sent in uh, for marriage. Questions um, like, uh, Christian, what do you do in marriage? Um, these are questions that came in last week. Uh, when you have cheated on your spouse... And you can no longer be trusted. How do you have a good marriage? Uh, questions like, Christian, I feel like we have fallen out of love. And we just don't care about each other anymore. Should we stay married? Um, Christian, I am trying, but my spouse doesn't care. How long do I have to wait um, to leave? Uh, we are getting some great questions in. And Sunday, March 3rd, Danielle and I will just be sitting on stools on stage. And we'll be answering all the questions that you submit all month long. You don't have to put your name on them. Be totally confidential. But if you have any questions as I'm preaching about your own personal marriage, about your kid's marriage, a friend's marriage, please submit those. You can throw them in the offering basket at the end of the service, and we'll do our very best to, uh, to help you continue to understand what the Bible has to say about marriage. Uh, and in Genesis chapter 3 today, we're going to continue one of the most very well-known stories in, in, I believe, the history of the world, the story of Adam and Eve. And here's what's so crazy about the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, most people could... Um, if they were looking, if they were touring an art museum and they saw a picture of kind of a, a semi-naked man and woman with fig leaves sewn together and an apple and a snake, they could almost tell you the story. I mean, it's a very well-known story uh, in our world today, but the underlying details of life, of marriage, of relationship with God, so many people never look at. And last week we studied Genesis chapter 2 and I think some eyes were open real wide to what God had to say about marriage. And today in Genesis chapter 3, we have a similar thing happen. It's a story that probably you've heard, but you don't understand what it means for your marriage because you've never really studied it in depth. Last week, we answered this question from Genesis chapter 2. What's the point of marriage? Why do people get married? Why did God institute marriage? Marriage, what's the point? And last week, we said in Genesis chapter 2, 24, God said to Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, this is why people get married. So last week we answered the question, why do people get married? We answered why people get married. Because people need people. People need need. They need to understand how to be vulnerable and desperate for someone. People need, we said, relational fusion. They need to come together slowly. We talked about date nights and uh, trips away and some romantic getaways. We talked about why marriage is important. Today in Genesis chapter 3, the marriage would be the, the question would be this. So last week... Why is marriage important? This week, why is marriage so hard? Uh, those of you who are in here and you're married and you've been married more than six months uh, would say, I think with people like me who have been married 
Now, it'll be 14 years this summer. Uh, marriage is one of the most difficult things that I have ever had to do. Marriage has been harder than I thought it would be. Marriage is not dating. Marriage isn't even close to dating. Marriage is difficult. Great marriage is really difficult. Why is that? Why is marriage so hard? Why would something that in Genesis 2 God gave us to complete creation, why would it be something that, that ends up being so difficult? We answer that question today in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read through the first 20 verses and I'm going to come through and explain some things very, very slowly about why the Bible says, predicts, God uh, basically prophesies that uh, marriage is going to be difficult for anyone who ever is married. Uh, we'll start in Genesis 2.24, since that's where we left off last week. Um, everything we read before, people need people, people need need, people need relational fusion. This is why. Because of those facts, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We in Genesis chapter 2 and everything is perfect. We begin Genesis chapter 3 and everything's getting ready to go wrong. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. And the Lord God called to them and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, and if you wonder, why is marriage so hard? Verse 16, circle it, highlight it, underline it, box it out, write it down. Why is marriage so hard? To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And painful labor will give, you, uh, will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. We'll explain that verse to you in a minute so you get it. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not, not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of the food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Now, what just happened there that makes your marriage and my marriage so difficult? Uh, last year, we did an entire month-long series on what we call biblical marriage. If you have your notes, I want you to write this down, and I hope you memorize this, because this is very important. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16, Solomon's fiancée says this about Solomon. She said, He is my lover, and he is my friend. 
We described and defined biblical marriage last year based on that verse. Biblical marriage is, are two people who are best friends and passionate lovers. That's what bi- the love of biblical marriage is defined as. Two people who are best friends and passionate lovers. We're going to talk a lot in our five-week marriage series about how to draw closer relationally. We're going to talk just next week on the passionate lover part. Next week is, is what we call sex week at, at JCI. It's not just a message. It's an entire week. We're going to ask next week that no one under the age of 16 actually be in the auditorium. If you're in the student ministry, we're going to ask you to serve in the nursery uh, or the kids ministry. And we're going to ask that it only be 16 and up because we're going to talk about the part of marriage that I believe is really missing in Christian marriage. I don't believe we talk enough about sex and its place in marriage and the conflict it brings and um, the satisfaction it brings, the intimacy that it brings. So next week will be sex week at JCI. Um, I can see all the men right now are like pulling out their phones and they're like, make sure and be at JCI next week. It's going to be a, a fun week at our church as we learn to love each other well. That's next week. But we want to learn how to become best friends and passionate lovers. Why? Because we want great marriages. You know, Friday night we had a women's event at our church just down the road uh, at another church here in town. And I was talking with Vanessa Higgins, who leads our ladies' ministry, just about the marriage series in general. Uh, And she made the comment, she said, Christian, I can't think of one um, television show, one movie, I can't think of one anything that portrays a healthy marriage on TV or in the media today. Can you? And we just started going kind of like down the slate of what we knew between us was on TV, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's like, you know, I don't know that there's one healthy marriage presented to us in the world of media today. And when I would say healthy or functional, I mean, how many of you remember the Cosby show, like with the Huxtables? I mean, you know, mom and dad that lived together and three kids and great show. I mean, you could watch that and actually learn some things from that. And I thought there are, there are zero good models of marriage today. And because of that, we don't, we don't really know what's good and, and what's bad. And I think we have crossed our wires over, over trying to evaluate our marriage because we think this, and I want you to write down a, a few equations. We think that a good relationship equals harmony all the time. That people who have good marriages are happy all the time. And they never fight. And they never struggle. And there's no conflict. And there's no tension. And good relationships are marked by harmony. If that is true, I don't know anyone who has a good relationship. At the same time, we think bad relationships equal conflict. And we say if there's conflict in our marriage, if there's tension in our marriage, if there are disagreements in our marriage, we have a bad marriage and we should just quit because I feel like we're going further apart, not closer together. And if there's any disagreement or distance at all, we just think it's not working like we thought we were going to work, we should just quit. And, and we in our head have a picture of marriage that isn't the picture of marriage that the Bible gives us, that in a good marriage everything is perfect. And if anything is less than perfect, it's a bad marriage and maybe we should just quit and try to start over and find a good marriage. And the fact is this, where there are relationships, there are conflict and tension. Whether it's a husband and wife, whether it's parents to kids, whether it's a boss to employees or employees to a boss or employees to employees or neighbors or coaches on a sports team, where there are human relationships, there are conflict and tension. And the truth is, the people who are closest in life are usually those who have worked through some conflict and tension, and it's driven their relationship even deeper. 
on a level that people who exist on the surface will never know. If you've, if you've not ever had a confrontation or conflict or a discussion of, man, I thought you meant this, but I took it as this way. If, if you've never had to go to the next level with a person, you probably have a very surface relationship. We find out conflict and tension actually drive us together, not apart, if we face them correctly. And as I talk to you today, the, the kind of the title, the overall theme of our Bible study today is Unlearning Bad Marriage. I want to change your mind and rewire you a little bit to realize the place of conflict and tension in your marriage and how you can take that and not try to get rid of it, but take it and use it to grow closer together. Genesis 3 says this to us as we look at the three things we're going to learn from Genesis 3. Number one, if you are married, if you are single, if you are divorced, if, if you want to learn what the Bible says about marriage today, you, you need to first recognize, God says, and accept the tension that will always exist in marriage. Recognize every marriage relationship will be marked by tension and conflict and accept it. It's just there and it's not going away. Listen, before you got married, the institution of marriage was broken. Say, who broke it? Adam and Eve did. And God said the consequences. It's really interesting here because we see that Adam and Eve disobey God. And God comes and the serpent, who we learn later through Scripture, uh, was acting on behalf of the the great evil in the world that we call the devil or Satan. Um, God cursed the devil. And God cursed the ground. But he did not curse Adam and Eve. He said the ground is cursed, the devil is cursed, but your consequences will be difficult. So you need to see the difference between curse and consequences. The consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience put conflict and tension forever in human relationships. See, Christian, where do you see that? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I want you to look at this verse with me. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. So the greatest gift a mother could have, giving birth to a child, was now going to be marked with difficulty. And there are some of you in here who are like my little sister, um, like my brother-in-law. You've had difficulty getting pregnant. You've had miscarriages. Um, you've struggled. Uh, that's, that all traces back to childbearing was never meant to be that way. It wasn't meant to be hard. No one was ever meant to have hard labor or difficulty having children. That was one of the consequences, difficult childbearing. But then God also said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, because we are romantics at heart, we hear that and we think, oh, how, how sweet. Eve is going to fall desperately in love with Adam, but he's going to rule over her with an iron fist. That's not what the Bible says here. And if I had time to teach you a Hebrew lesson, I would teach you a Hebrew lesson because Genesis was originally written in Hebrews, uh, in, in the Hebrew language. But instead, I'm going to show you this verse in its proper context so that you can understand what God is saying to Eve. You need to understand, Genesis 3 is not a love story. When God is saying, your desire will be for your husband, that's not a good thing, that's not a romantic thing, that's not an exciting thing, that's not a head over heels in love thing. We only see it that way because we think romantically, husband and wife love each other. The correct context of that verse is given to us in Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve had two sons. Their names were Cain and Abel. And Cain was just a wild man. He was rebellious to his parents. He hated his brothers. He wasn't real close to God. And God came to Cain one day and said, Dude, i got to get your attention, man. Things are not going well for you. And this is not going to end well if you don't change your heart. And here's what he said to Cain. He said the exact same thing to Cain that he said to Eve, but in its proper context. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, he said, Cain... 
If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Listen now. These words sound familiar, right? It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see, we don't read that and think, oh, sin loves Cain. No, sin wants to conquer Cain. And God said, Cain, the only thing that you're going to have to do is you're going to have to rise up and you're going to have to put it in its place. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, marriage was perfect and everything was good. And God looked at it and blessed it and said, it's awesome. In Genesis chapter 3, 16, God said, here is the picture now forever of marriage. Because of what you've done, you've disobeyed me and you've, you've acted selfishly and you're now more for yourself than you are for me or for anyone else. God said, here's what marriage will look like. A woman will continually have a desire to overcome the control of their husbands. A woman will look at their husband and say, you can't put me in my place and I will not follow you and I will not serve you and I can be my own person. God says, for the rest of time, this is what unhealthy marriage will look like. A woman will try to rise up and not be put in her place by her husband and her husband will respond determined to to squash the value of their wives and God said, you all have ruined marriage forever now. This is what unhealthy marriage looks like. In Genesis 2, we saw perfect marriage. What did perfect marriage look like the way it was? You had two people who it was their life's desire to love and serve God. It was their life's desire to love and serve each other. They literally had a perfect partnership that by Genesis 3.16 had been ruined. They went from love and serve God together to love and serve each other together to a woman who would want to overcome the control of her husband, a man who would respond to that by squashing the value of their wives. And you literally have a couple that went from, we talked about fusion becoming one, locked together to a couple that was like this forever. Just constant conflict and tension. And if we can't embrace this and understand this and learn how to respond to this, if we stay married, it won't be any fun. There won't be any value in it. It it won't be satisfying to our soul or to our kids or to people around us. So we have to understand this and we have to embrace this. Now, I want to give you some marriage facts today. And the first one, um, it isn't mind-blowing, but it, but it needs to be said. And maybe you've never understood this, but I, I want to drop some knowledge on you today, just, just in case you were unaware and you've been living under a rock. Here's the first thing you need to understand about men and women being married to each other. And you should write this down, because this is like a marriage fact worth remembering. Men and women are different, all right? I don't know if you knew that, if you grasped that. We're different physically, we're different emotionally, we're different spiritually, we're different relationally, we enjoy different things, we pursue different things, and we find out we are loved in different ways, and we have different views of what's important in marriage. And ladies, if you don't know what your husband thinks is important in marriage, and, la- and men, if you don't know what your wife thinks is important in marriage, you're going to live in constant conflict and tension Because you all don't love the same things and and you're kind of going in opposite directions. You're trying to take two people who are built totally different and bring them together to live happily ever after. It's difficult. Uh, Dr. Willard Harley wrote a book, His Needs, Her Needs. One of the greatest marriage books ever written. A, A lifelong counselor to marriage. And in his book, he listed what men say after 40 years of counseling. These are the five things that men say are the most important things in marriage to them. And these are the five things that women say are the most important things to them in marriage. I'd be interested if I just said, make a list of the five and choose how many you would get right. Because I think men know what we're looking for and what we're satisfied with. 
Um, and I think ladies know what they're looking for and what they're satisfied with. But I don't know that we understand each other or that we even care enough to serve one another. Dr. Willard Harley said the needs of men, the top five needs of men, and, and you should write these down, ladies, and you should write these down, men, uh, if you want to figure out how to work through the conflict and tension. The number one need of men in marriage, according to men over 40 years of counseling, the number one thing a man needs in a marriage relationship, number one, sexual fulfillment. You know, your mom always told you he's only got one thing on his mind, and apparently she was right, according to uh, Dr. Harley. Say, Christian, what do you think about that? I'm just glad he agrees with me. And I'm not a psychologist, but I, you know, I saw that and I was like, bang, that man knows what he's talking about. Bring it now. Um, sexual fulfillment is number one. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, so get the little kids up out of here so we can talk like adults. Number two, um, men say the, the second most important thing in their relationship is recreational companionship. What does that mean? That means we want you to like the things we like. And we want you to do those things with us. Uh, If you ever watch how men hang out, um, men don't have lunch together just to get together and talk. Men will go fishing together or hunting together or play golf together. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen a a women's church golf league or soccer league. You know, I've women play bunco and we have women's scrapbooking groups and women like to get together and hang out. Men like to do things. And men love when their wives will do things with them. Uh, We want you to watch the game with us. That's important to us. We want you, when when we're out doing our recreational thing, we like for you to come watch us and be interested in that because we're into recreational companionship. Number three, men are looking for an attractive spouse. They're looking for someone that they're attracted to in their eyes. And everyone's attraction is different. But we're looking for somebody that we look for and long for. We're looking, number four, men, according to Dr. Harley, for domestic support. And you say, like, does that mean like a maid? Like my husband wants me to be his maid? Not really. Maybe, kind of, sort of. I mean, a little bit. Um, But what that means is, you know, a man, it's important for a man that he feels like his wife is helping him uh, carry the burden of the home and of the family. Uh, and of leading a family together. And then a man, number five, is looking for admiration and praise. I said this last year, I'll say it again. Men are the most insecure beings on planet Earth. I promise you that. Um, You say, when you say admiration and praise, what do you mean by that? I mean, we want you to tell us how good we are. That's what I mean. We want you to look at us and say, you're so... You're so strong. You're so handsome. Man, the yard looks so good. Look at the... You just make it up, all right? Even if it's not true, we like to hear good things about ourselves because we're insecure. Uh, We want you to tell us good things about it. Tell us how good of a dad we are and how good of a husband we are and how how proud of us you are for uh, going to work and supporting the family. Those things are important to men. Women is totally different. Uh, Dr. Harley mentioned the five needs of women. What are the things that women look for? What are the things that women desire? What are the things that women are empowered by most in marriage? Number one, affection of a non-sexual type. Affection of a non-sexual type. Holding hands. um, Cuddling on the couch together while you're watching TV uh, or a football game. Um, while you're riding in the car, laying your hand on her leg. These gentle touches remind her that you love her. By the way, if you are a dad of a little girl in here, this list better be like really important to you, not only for your wife, but for your daughter. 
Because if you don't fulfill these things in your daughter, she'll find a man too quickly. Promise you. These things are important to, to, to girls. Um, number two, support in conversation. So what does that mean? She likes to talk to you. And listen, you know that. You know your, your wife likes to talk. And sometimes you wish she would talk to someone else. And, and guess what? If you don't support her in conversation, someone will. Your wife who's always on the phone with her mom or her sisters or her friend at school or people that she hangs out with, she's doing that because you're not around enough to talk. She'd rather talk to you, but you're not available for. Number three, it's crazy because the women said that their third knee was honest and open communication. You look at this and you say, wait a minute, two of the top three were talking? Yeah, basically two of the top three were talking. Like, we're sex. It's not even in here. It doesn't make the top five. Two of the three, are, I just want someone to share my life. I want someone to talk to me. I want open and honest communication. I want to be able to live together, grow together. Number four, support financially. Say, what for? For their shopping habits. You you know what for. Um, No, they want security. That's what that means, support financially. Support financially means she wants to know you've got things taken care of, and if things aren't taken care of, you'll figure it out. You're going to take care of that piece of life. And then number five, they want a man who will maintain a family commitment, who will care greatly about being a dad who will care greatly about one day being a grandpa, who care dearly about being a good husband, somebody who's proud to have and support and lead and live within a family. So you look at what men are looking for and you look at what women are looking for and you say, man, that is, those are ten things and they're all opposite. Like how do we cram those together in one marriage? That's the million dollar question. But you need to realize marriage is broken and men and women aren't the same and you're going to have to figure out how to take your differences and bring them together we can see these as divine differences god made us this way and opposites can attract and we can fulfill where one of us is lacking or we can see these as divisive differences they're not you know christian they're just not like me they don't like the things that i like they won't come out with me he never talks to me she spends all my money um you know he doesn't care about the kids we can look at these and say these are divisive and I'm leaving, or we can say these are divine and I, and I have to figure, figure it out. We can wrestle with these issues, or we can rest in them and learn how to figure them out. Uh, I told our 915 service, some people hear the word wedlock, and they hear wed, and they think of wedding, and they think of marriage, and they're excited. Some people hear the word wedlock, and they think of the word lock, and they think of prison, and they feel like they're trapped. And, you know, and it's like, why would I ever want to get married again, or how can I stay married? This is just miserable. How, how are we going to work through the tension? We recognize it. We accept it. How do we work through it? Number two, we have to learn to fight fair. Now, I had originally labeled this point in my sermon notes, we have to learn to handle conflict wisely. But I thought, let's just say it like it is. We got to learn to fight fair. We got to learn how, how to get together and get it all out in the middle of the room and, and figure it out. And it's interesting because one of the first things you have to do, like if you say, Christian, what's the first step to learning how to fight fair? Really the first thing is you've got to make sure you're fighting with the right person. I have found one of the biggest hindrances to overcoming conflict in marriage is that most people, when they have conflict in marriage, they'll go talk to someone besides their spouse. Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother or sister sins, if anyone ever does anything to offend you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. You see that? Just the two of you. You know, most people when they have difficulty or conflict or tension in their marriage, you know who the first person they call is, usually? Does anyone want to take a guess? You can say it out loud. Mom, dad, sisters, brother, 
pastor, someone who's in my small group, someone who I work with. And we will, we will talk about conflict and tension with everyone except the person we have conflict and tension with, and we wonder why it never gets overcome. And you know, want to know one of the most dangerous things about talking about conflict and tension? When you call your mom and dad and you unload on them everything your spouse has done because you're so upset, and then later that night you and your spouse work it out and you don't think about it anymore, your mom and dad never forget it. And they hate your spouse because of it forever. And long after you have forgotten some conflict or tension, they'll bring it up. So remember when he did that to you? Remember when she did that to you? You've got to handle conflict within your marriage. All right? It's not for the whole world to handle for you. So how do, we learn to, how do we learn to get through conflict? You know, Dr. John Gottman wrote a book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And he studied 49 couples over 16 years in what was called in research an apartment laboratory, which means he studied their lives seven days a week for 16 years. And he discovered that couples deal with conflict one of three ways. They fight by flight or by fright. And he basically said this, flight is bad. Flight is I see conflict and I just run away from it and I choose not to deal with it. That is how your pastor deals with marital conflict. I'm the guy who when things raise up, I want to go take a walk. I want to drive around. I just need need space. I'm a flight person. Uh, Another bad way to deal with it is fright. Danielle is a fright person. I don't want to make him mad, so I'm just not going to bring it up. I'll just learn how to get over it. So one person runs away. One person just says, I'm never going to bring it up because I don't want to offend. The only healthy way to deal with conflict is to fight. But you have to fight fair. And I want to share with you today some tips for fair fighting, eight tips for fair fighting. Because if you're going to have a great marriage, guess what? It won't be a marriage without conflict or without tension because Genesis 3.16 says they're there to stay. So it's going to be a marriage where you're able to work through conflict and tension. Eight tips to fight fair. You have to understand this. One, timing is everything. Timing is everything. You should never jump into a conflict that one spouse doesn't know is coming or that one spouse or both spouses don't have time for. If you start a fight, or you try to handle conflict in the 30 seconds that you're leaving for the day, that conflict will boil all day long, and really the only problem was you just didn't have enough time to deal with it. So timing is everything. From what I have learned about marriage and from counselors, number two, you need to schedule your conflict. You need to actually schedule your conflict. Hey, before we go to bed tonight, before this week is over, when do you have available in your calendar where we can grab breakfast or coffee or lunch together and talk through this. Um, when is your night going to be free so we can discuss this? One of the worst things about dealing with conflict is just uh, like a cold call, picking up the phone, calling your spouse at a time where they really don't have time to either listen, understand, apologize, even care. Is, is it just, it, it makes you more mad, it makes them angry, they feel like you're selfish. So schedule your conflict. Number three, never fight in front of your kids. Your scheduled conflict should make sure that the kids are always in bed or someplace else before you fight. Because, man, this scares kids and it shakes them up. I'm ashamed to say Danielle and I, uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, were fighting about something stupid. And, I mean, it was, I, I literally can't even remember it. It was something stupid. And we were yelling back and forth at each other. And our kids were sitting at the dinner table. And, and we were up in our room and we were discussing it, um, you know, in pretty hushed tones you know we we rarely ever if ever yell at each other but i i was so upset that i just said you know i need to cool off and as i left my house 
I slammed my garage door behind me, and we have a big mirror that hangs right in our entryway, and it fell off the wall and crashed and broke glass all over the floor. And my kids just exploded, crying, thought I was going to get divorced, thought we were never going to come back. Um, and I just thought, you know, what a horrible dad that I was to be so selfish that I didn't care, um, that, I, that I gave my kids a memory that they will never forget of dad leaving the house and breaking a mirror. I mean, it, it, I'm ashamed to say, like, you know, I'm supposed to be the pastor of the church, the guy who does this well. And man, I get it wrong sometimes. You know, and, and then you get it wrong, and then you're embarrassed. Our staff has staff meetings, you know, in our house. So two days later, the staff's there, and like, what happened in the mirror? And I'm like, I don't know. It, you know, it just fell. So then I'm lying. So now I'm like, God, forgive me for being a bad husband, and forgive me for lying to my staff, and, you know, being a bad dad and all that. You know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm an idiot, and I got mad, and I, and I, didn't, I didn't fight fair. Um, and I, I broke a big rule. Number four, be quick to be honest. One of the things that, that drives conflict and tension deep is that it's never confronted, it's never spoken, it's never brought into the open. So I tell people, listen, as soon as conflict or tension happens, at that moment, at the moment you feel it, let your spouse know you're aware of it. And number, uh, number, number five, discuss the issue, not the blame. Uh, Adam, you know, God said to Adam, what did you do? And Adam said, it's Eve's fault. And God said to Eve, what'd you do? And she's like, it's the serpent's fault. Um, and the serpent was like, I don't have a leg to stand on. Uh, you know, yeah, that's my only joke of the day. Um, you know, and it's like, what do we do? So many times when we fight in marriage, um, we just want someone to claim the guilt and to apologize for it. Discuss the issue, not the blame. So if your husband or wife does something to upset you or defend you or to bring conflict or tension, just at that moment, send them a text message, send them an email. Don't send them something that will drive untimed conflict, but something like this. Hey, I was really hurt this morning by something that happened. Can we talk when you get home? See, that you, you could say the same thing by pointing blame. You were a jerk to me this morning, and I need to talk to you. No, you just come from your perspective. I was hurt. You hurt my feelings. I don't know if you knew it. I don't know if you need it. I was wounded this morning. Hey, I'm struggling with something. I feel like we're not together on this. Get to the issue. The issue is I'm hurt. I'm offended. Um, you did something wrong. Get to the issue and say, let's discuss the issue. Don't blame the person. Number six, confront gently. No name call. And I'm telling you, you want to you end an argument incorrectly, start calling names. Because when you start lashing out at people, it never gets better. Number seven, end the fight at the end of the fight, which means this, when we're done talking, this issue is over. We don't finish it, go to bed, and the next morning, I bring it up to you again, or the next week, I bring it up, or six months later, when you do something, I, I remind you of it. When it's over, it's over. When the fight is over, end the fight. And then number eight, refuse to hold a grudge. Realize, men, that your wife is not perfect. Realize, ladies, that your husband is not perfect. And just get over it when they make mistakes. Get through it and then get over it. Proverbs 19.11 said it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. What does that mean? That means it makes one look more like God. That's what that word glory is. It makes one look more like God when they choose to overlook something and not hold a grudge. Why? Because didn't God do that for us? Aren't you glad God has not held a grudge against you and your actions against Him in life? It makes us look more like God when we choose to overlook an offense. So we've got to learn to fight fair. Now, if you can learn to fight fair, you can learn to have a great marriage. Even a marriage, according to Genesis 3, that's destined to have conflict and tension, 
But really the root of everything that you've got to get to the bottom of uh, as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a, as a Christian, uh, we all have to try to learn to become selfless. And I've added here on your notes, no matter how long it takes. We have to learn to become selfless, number three, no matter how long it takes. And I, I take my note here from Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, and he says, you need to be more like Jesus, and let me show you how Jesus was. And Paul said this in Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't just look to your own interests, but each of you should look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, husbands and wives, that's us, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, what was his mindset? Him who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This text right here is one of the greatest theological texts in the history of the Christian church. For hundreds of years, this question was asked, how did Jesus step out of heaven and become a man? How does that happen? How does someone leave heaven and become a man? And the answer was Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. They gave it a Greek word called kenosis. If you go Google this, you'll read about the great kenosis. This is one of the greatest theological finds of all time. And, and the word kenosis means the self-emptying. It means selfless. How did Jesus leave heaven to become a man? He gave it up. He, of his own volition, he gave it up. He said, I'm going to take my selfish rights and I'm going to set them aside and I'm going to be selfless and be a servant to the world. The catalyst for salvation being offered to humanity was Jesus deciding to be selfless, which is interesting because the catalyst for sin, the catalyst for disobedience, the catalyst for marriage going crazy in Genesis 3.16 was selfishness. It was the exact opposite. So Jesus says, by being selfless, I can change the world for good. Adam and Eve, by being selfish, change the world for bad. And what is the motto of sin? The motto of sin is, I want it. I want it. That's what Adam and Eve had happened to them in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent crawled up and he said, did God really say that? And he's like, yeah, God did say that. But Genesis 3 said, she looked at it, thought, I want it. Saw that it was pleasing to the eye, thought, I want it. Saw that it was desirable for food, I'm hungry. So she took it and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband. This is one of my favorite lines in Genesis 3 because we don't tell the story this way. We act like Eve had this private conversation. Then she went and found Adam. Genesis 3, 6 says she gave it to her husband who was with her. Most Bible scholars believe that Adam was standing by Eve the entire time she had the conversation with the servant and he never stepped in and said, ah, don't do that. Why? They wanted it. Selfishness. You know, if we read in Genesis chapter 3 the consequences... The immediate consequences of sin, they're scary. And they lead us to what a bad marriage looks like today. The first consequence from sin that happened immediately is there was immediate separation from God. Adam and Eve who had been so close to God. Adam and Eve who had taken walks with God. Adam and Eve who, I mean, literally they were one with God in Genesis 3.8. Immediately after this selfish sin, it says Adam and Eve hid from God. So two people who were born to be close to God were all of a sudden separated from God. But more than that, there was now tension with humanity. 
Two people who were born to get along and to be blessed and never really have anything go wrong were going to live in human relationships. The only human relationships that really Eve would ever have, she would either have a husband or children. That was about it. God said, your, your relationship with your husband in the process of having children is going to be strained. It's going to be difficult. All of a sudden, life has tension in it. And it's interesting because when I think of the word separation and when I think of the word tension, um, I think of a childhood game. I think of the game of tug of war. And I'm going to ask Danielle to come up here for a minute because I, I want to illustrate to you, uh, you know, and, and we could teach the Greek and we could teach the Hebrew and we could do all that, but I'd rather show you a picture of what marriage looks like according to Genesis chapter 3.16 because the Bible says that after the sin of Adam and Eve, that sin got in the way of their relationship and it separated them from each other. And now all of a sudden, God said, this is what marriage is. You've messed it up. Here's what marriage looks like now. You're going to be, with, with selfishness in the middle, you're going to be pulling on things you want in life, and she's going to be pulling on things that, you, that she wants in life. And now it doesn't work anymore because you're only each thinking of yourself. And this is what most of your marriages look like right here. This is what I want. No, this is what I want. And you're trying to figure out who, who's going to win. Now drop the rope, Danielle. Now, the first service, she dropped it. So I told her between services, don't drop the rope. Because most couples in here today are trying to decide who's going to drop the rope, and it's not going to be them. They're saying, you know what, Pastor Christian, my, this is what my marriage looks like. And my spouse needs to drop the rope. Because if they drop it, we won't have a problem. Now go ahead and put it down, Danielle. Put the rope down, Danielle. Here, just sit right here. Um, here's the deal. See, if Danielle puts the rope down, guess who's still living selfishly for myself? See, I am. See, one person in the marriage deciding to be selfless doesn't make a great marriage. So she could come on my end and pull, but all she's doing is giving in to my selfish desires. She's really even putting me before God when she does this. And this is not the way marriage is supposed to look like. Now, this is what marriage is. Women desire to overcome control their husbands. Husbands desire to squash the value of their wives. But that's not the way marriage was intended to be. As a matter of fact, that's not the way that marriage even started. If you want to look at what selfless marriage looks like, here's what selfless marriage looks like. See, we got, when selfishness got in the way, we, we were separated. We, there was tension. It was, it was a, a competition, me against her. But Jesus said, I will be selfless. And where sin once was, I will go. And I will handle that. And then Jesus said, if, if you'll put me in the middle, I'll draw people to myself. Now I want you to watch what happens when people decide to quit being selfish. And they say, I'm going to live for God. A husband and wife who decide to live for God together. Look what happens. As I start getting closer to God, I'm getting closer to my wife. As Danielle starts getting closer to God, she's getting closer to me. And the true marriage is not only defined as a marriage with God in the middle, but a true marriage is when you get bound up like this, and God literally, in his love, oh, I can't do it. Here, grab that one. Uh, and God holds you together. This, this is a picture of biblical marriage right here. See how I'm affectionate right now in a non-sexual way? <laughs> Later, I hope she will reward the need of my life. 
Because I'm just very gently rubbing her shoulder. We can maybe use this rope next week. Like that? You are like attached to me right now. I got two ropes. Robbie, you can have one too. Um, this, is, this is what biblical marriage looks like. Biblical marriage is two people who have set selfishness aside and said, I'm going to live for God so I can be closer to my spouse. And the closer I get to God, God allows us to become one together where all three of us are bound up together. Give my lovely assistant a hand if you would. Thank you, Danielle. See, Ephesians 5 says that real marriage, biblical marriage, looks like this. Women, a wife who will say, I'll serve my husband because the love of God compels me to. Because the love of God compels my heart to be closer to him, I'll be closer to my husband. And a man responds by not ruling over his wife, but by saying, I'll serve my wife because the love of God compels me to. And we see conflict and tension in life, in relationships, in eternity that can only be broken by replacing sin with Jesus and being closer to him, which draws you closer to each other. Now, I read last week of a couple, John and Ann Bitek, who received an award last week for having the longest marriage right now currently in the United States. They've been married 81 years. They live in Fairfield, Massachusetts. They still live in the home that they've lived in for nearly 50 years. They're not in a retirement home. He's 101. She's 97. And they've been married 80 years. And they ask him, you know, what's the secret to 80 years of marriage? And he said, we just learned to roll with life and keep going. He basically said, we figured out how not to let conflict and tension stop us. We figured out how to get through it. Jesus takes the conflict and tension of life and he replaces selfishness with selflessness and allows a husband and wife to be drawn to each other. But I'm telling you, it's the only way through. The conflict and tension won't leave. But if you can put Jesus in the middle of it, you can continue to work through it. So what are your marriage, your marriage next steps today for those of you who are married? Number one, I want you to schedule a time to fight fair if there's a conflict in your marriage. If there's something right now that's been unsaid for a day, a month, a year, a decade, it's time to schedule a time using your tips for how to fight fair. It's time to get it out on the table. It won't go away. You need to confront it. Number two, bullet point number two. I want you to discuss the differences between men and women that we've given here today and figure out how you can use that knowledge to serve your spouse. Not to serve yourself, but to serve your spouse. Here's the five things that women want. How can I serve myself? How can I be affectionate? How can I be more open and honest in communication? How can I provide support in communication? How can I make her feel secure? How can she know that I'm in the long haul with this for my family? Wives, you can do the same thing for your husbands in their list. Um, Bullet point three, pray about dropping your end of the rope. Right? You can't control what your spouse does. You can only control what you do. Pray about giving up on selfishness. Pray about not having it your way. But just literally dropping the rope and going to a whole new game and trying to figure out how you can pull the love of God into your life. Bullet point number four, bind yourself to God's love. It might be a long time before your spouse gets there, and guess what? They may never get there. 
But I promise you, you'll feel more fulfilled and secure in God's love even than you will in the love of your spouse if you have the love of a spouse without God's love. And then finally, pray that God's love binds your spouse to you. That is how we pursue biblical marriage when marriage, according to Genesis 3.16, is irrevocably broken. However, I don't know if you caught it or not, but uh, marriage is really the least of the important things that we talked about today. The most important thing that we showed you today was the simple gospel message, which is this. Sin has ruined the world and separated you from God. And if you don't learn how to put down trying to control your own life, control your own destiny, control your own eternity, be your own boss, if you won't put down the battle against sin and pick up God's love in your own life, every relationship you have in life will be off. And your eternity one day will be spending an eternity without God. Yet God said, I'll send Jesus to work all this out. And today, more than your marriage needs to be worked out, today maybe your relationship with Jesus needs to be worked out. You know what's so funny? There's a lot of you who at some point in life have picked up God's love. You've carried it well. You've worn it as a banner. And you're a Christian. You're not afraid of dying because you know when you're gonna, you die, you're going to go to heaven, but your, your life on earth is hell. You know what you've done? You've kind of set this aside. You said, this will be my eternal rope. This will be how I live my life. I'll live it for me. Some of you today need to recommit your life to quit living for yourself and to live for God. Some of you today, you've never become a Christian. You've never given control of your life to God. And today, my plea to you is to put down your life, pick up the life and the eternity and the forgiveness and the fulfillment that God has for you, and begin to be led by his rope wherever that goes. You say, well, what's going to happen? I don't know, but you can trust it. I promise you. So here's how we're going to end today. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And as we close in prayer right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, by far the most important thing in this message is for you to understand that while sin has separated you from God, Jesus has come so that God could be in your life, could be on your life, could control your life, and could give you eternal life. And if you're in here today and you have never accepted this gift of replacement, sin out, Jesus in, today you can have that. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Son of God, you'll be saved. What does that mean? That means in your heart, there's this beating of your heart that says, I want God, I need God. I, I want to be able to depend on God. I want to go to heaven one day and be with God. And then when you confess with your mouth, you pray a prayer and say, God, I need you. The Bible says you'll be saved, you'll be changed. Your life will be wrapped up with God and his love now. If you've never done that, today you can do that right now before you leave. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You say, Christian, I don't even know how to pray. I'll pray for you. And you can just pray after me. You don't even have to pray out loud. You can just pray in your heart. But today, if the cry of your heart is to give God control of your life, to ask him to forgive you for your sin and selfishness, and to put control of your life and future and eternity in his hands, pray this prayer just in your own heart. You don't even have to speak it. God, today, I need you. And today I willingly surrender my life and I lay it down and I pick up the life that you have for me with Jesus in the middle of it. Today I ask you to forgive me of my sin and my selfishness. Forgive me for all the time that I was separated from you and trying to pull my own weight. And today I accept your love 
your future, your forgiveness, your eternal life. Today I'm yours, whatever that means. Save me and change me today. Now with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just prayed that prayer, please no one looking around for the respect of those near you. But if you just prayed that prayer on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just so that I can know it, so that I can begin to pray for you, and so that I can know God is moving. Because I felt like God laid on my heart that there were some people that needed to drop their rope and begin to allow God to lead them. So if you just prayed that prayer on the count of three, would you just raise your hand and leave it up for three seconds? One, two, three. Yes. Yes. Anybody else? God, thank you for those that today laid down their rope to follow you. Now I want to pray specifically with heads still bowed and eyes still closed for the Christians in the room who at some point in their life picked up, Lord, the life you had for them and then for some reason decided to lay it down and start pulling their own way again. I feel like there's some people in here, Lord, who need to recommit their life to, to, to once again put down the rope and to start following you. So God, I just pray for those people right now. And if that's you, I just want you to whisper this simple prayer under your breath as the desire of your heart today to pursue God's love and to be wrapped up in it. And and here's how simple this prayer can be for those of you who are rededicating. Dear God, I'm back. And I'm going to try to follow you to the best of my ability. Forgive me for putting down your love and not making it the center of my life. Help me to get it right. Walk with me. Help me to get it right. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you just prayed today to rededicate your life, you just slip your hand up real quick so that I can know, Christian, today, man, I want to get it right again. Awesome. God, thank you for what you're doing in the lives of our people, in the lives of marriages, um, just in the life of this church. Bless us as we pursue you and everything that that means for our life, whether for our marriage for our morals, for our job, for the way we serve, for the way we give. Let it all be about you as you pull us along with your love. We love you. We see things in Jesus' name today. And everyone said together, amen. Here's what I want you to do. Don't leave.